Welcome to a Longer Table podcast, a space for real and sometimes hard conversations that will often challenge your perspective and always empower you to pull up more seats around your own table. I'm your host, Amanda Carpenter. Let's dive in. Allie, welcome to the table. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. I'm really pumped to get to know you and your story a little bit more because I love following you on social media. We have mutual friends here in Chicago. You just moved from Rwanda to California. Yeah, I, it's crazy. (laughs) How long were you living in Rwanda? I've actually been there the past two years. So it's kind of crazy to be back in the US. There's a lot of transition coming back and it's, it's been a wild season for sure. I have no idea where it is leading and that is part of the fun of it, I guess. It's also mapping, but yeah, yeah. That seems to be a theme in your life. Let's back up to, let's go all the way back to like your childhood, like your faith. Tell me a little bit about how you were raised. Yeah, I was raised in a really small one stoplight town in Northern California. My dad is a rice farmer and he also built the homes that we grew up living in. So um, I, my mom stayed home with us. She actually became a Christian when I was born. So she didn't really have a faith background before that, but um, that actually meant, and I've seen it happen kind of time and time again after this, where people who come to faith maybe later in their lives sometimes make a shift from not being a part of that world to very much a part of that world and thinking that religion might have to be something a little bit more on the extreme side. So I grew up in a super fundamentalist church. Um, it was extremely, extremely, um, we were sheltered. I, we were the only public schooled family actually in the church. Most of the girls wore their hair long, skirts the ground, and there was a lot of legalism in it. And a lot of the kids who grew up um, from there either rebelled a lot from our upbringing or now it kind of is looked at as a little bit of a cultish experience. It was pretty strange. Um, and then I transitioned into the much more free, quote unquote, uh, Baptist church and then worked in mega churches and that sort of thing. So I have run the gamut of church experiences for sure. Wow. Okay. So how did that influence, how did like your Christian upbringing, specifically what you just described, influence your choices as you grew up? As a kid, I will, I often, um, compare my teenage self to Mandy Moore in Saved. I don't know if you saw that movie. (laughs) Okay. I have not seen that, but I need to, because you're the second person to reference it recently. Really? Oh, I think it's hilarious. And she is just I mean, I think it's hilarious. I haven't watched it in a while, so I don't know how problematic it is anymore, but I feel like it really summed up my high school experience. Here is this girl who is very involved and does everything from church. We were, I mean, we brought all of our friends. Church and youth group were our activities. My friends and I brought all of our friends in the minivans and we would load it up and that was what we did. Um, It made my high school experience interesting because rather than do things because I thought they were, um, you know, the decision I wanted to make, I did them because I thought it was the right thing to do. So I, it became very much, um, I spent a lot of time seeking the approval of other people, especially those in authority, especially those who I thought 
knew better than I did. I grew up very much without the influence of, I don't know if you know of Awanas, uh, the group that the childhood, I don't know. Do you know what Awanas is? Yes, I've heard of it. Yeah. So as a kid, they teach you a, a lot of these Bible verses that just get run through your head and part of your heart and your whole faith. But so much of it, I felt as a kid was like the heart is deceptive above all things and desperately wicked for who can know it. And so I grew up really thinking I couldn't trust myself. And I remember so many of the decisions that I made from junior high on were all based in this idea of like somebody else knows God's will for my life. If I ask the people around me, maybe they know God's will for my life, but I didn't know how to discern that for myself. Wow. So what, do you have one specific story or decision as you got into an, as you got into adulthood where you realize now was based on that way of thinking and living instead of like a a mature, healthy faith? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I got married at 21 and you're not married now. No, I'm not. And we, um, we got engaged. Well, we bought my wedding, my wedding ring, my engagement ring. We bought my engagement ring on my 20th birthday. So I was really actually basically 19, 20 making this decision for my life. And I, we hadn't talked about marriage necessarily. It was on a whim. Was he a part of your church? He was. I knew him from high school and we had been friends. He's a great guy, was a great guy, is a great guy. Um, But I knew even in the beginning when we started dating, I just had this feeling that it wasn't the right thing for me, but I kept ignoring it. I kept ignoring it. And everyone around me just said, he's so great. You guys are so great together. Wow. You're going to do great things for the kingdom. And I remember thinking, I must be wrong. I must be wrong. Like this feeling that I have inside must be wrong. And I, I also grew up with um, the idea of self-sacrifice and desires being wrong as well. So if this, if I felt a desire for something, I probably needed to be suspicious of it. I probably needed to question if that was really God's will for my life. So when I got into this relationship and everyone was affirming it as being something that was from God, I really just, I wrestled with that a lot and thought I must be making the right decision if I choose this, even if it doesn't necessarily feel like the right thing. Wow. And I'm, I just have to ask, were you guys waiting for marriage to have sex? Was it the whole, cause I have a previous episode on purity culture and the dangers of that. So I'm just curious yes. if like, I was so that glad also- that you, I was so glad that you were talking about that because I really think that's a huge thing, especially in the church. Um, I had actually been with someone before, so I wasn't, but we were together waiting for marriage and he was as well. And so that did play into it. We both worked at a church as well. And so we were both on staff and everyone just thought it was this match made in heaven. And I think purity culture, all of that, I remember so much. And this is so embarrassing to um, even recall, but I think people will resonate with it. And I actually heard they're making a movie of uh, Redeeming Love. I don't know if you heard this. Yes. Okay. I have, a, I have several thoughts, but carry on. Same, I want to hear yours. Same. So I remember reading that book and it's like in the church and with the purity movement and all of this, I feel like there's this 
alignment that people want to kind of create with this woman and we are just this broken woman and thank God that this man accepted her with all of her brokenness and flaws. I don't know if that resonates with you, but I felt like it was problematic in that because I assumed so much of the role of this woman in it. And I remember that in my relationship having gone into this, having, you know, this past experience of being with someone, sleeping with someone and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm just coming to this broken, this coming into this relationship broken. And thank God he is willing to accept me with this history. Right, right. The fall of a redemption story is this. Obviously I say that really sarcastically because, yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny because five years ago, maybe, maybe more like six or seven years ago now, I'm not good with timelines, but I would have told you, I loved that book. And I felt like it was so much of my story with my husband, Eric. I did too. I felt the same thing. But I think as my, as I mature, as I grow, as my mindset changes and my perspectives are challenged, I totally agree with what you're saying. I see now it's like the, the problems with it are so obvious, but it doesn't mean that it couldn't have been a positive impact on me in, in the past. So I I hold those, I hold those tensions at the same time. Totally. Okay. So, so you marry this guy. I want to know what happens. Like how does, obviously you're not married anymore. So I am so curious what, what goes down. Yeah. I mean, we had probably the most untraditional marriage ever, but this is what happens, I think, when maybe two really young and completely um, unprepared people get married. We uh, didn't do marriage counseling. We just kind of went into things. Our church was actually part of a breakup and separation right at the same time that we were getting engaged and married. So there was a lot of dissension in our community already. And it was, it felt like our relationship kind of got thrown up in, in all of it, got, got really caught up in the chaos of everything. And so, um, when we were married, we lived kind of like college students. Uh, we had friends crashing on our couch. We had a pretty wild, um, like, I don't know. It was a pretty wild experience of a bunch of young 20s deconstructing around a bonfire in cigars, having, you know, first drinks for the first time and having this really deconstructive experience without having a lot of understanding or maturity or wisdom to accompany it. And we didn't have any, we didn't ask any of the questions like, Hey, what do you want for the rest of your life? Where do we want to live? Where do we want to go? Does your ambition and purpose match my ambition and purpose? Do we want to do the same things? What do you hope for? What are your dreams? Things that are really important. What's, what's money to you? What is sex to you? What are all of these important questions? Yes. And we do that. And so in those first, we were married for two and a half years. And during that time, um, we honestly didn't really fight. It wasn't hard. Um, it was okay, but I felt myself slowly dying and I just completely abandoned myself to this idea of, well, this is what the rest of my life looks like. And I felt something inside of me just going, this cannot be what the rest of your life looks like. 
Yeah. Well, it had to be hard to have this like history of self-sacrifice Christianity where it's, cause I get like, yes, following Jesus means dying to ourselves in certain ways. I, I really truly believe that, but, and I'm not going to articulate this perfectly, but it's like, no, God is not calling you to live a life of misery. Right. And so you are like, crap, I made this decision. I want to be a good wife. You probably at that point were like, divorce is so bad. It's like the unforgivable sin or totally. So absolutely. I'm, I'm guessing at least that. Oh that yeah. That was so my upbringing. I didn't even think it was an option on the table. So how did yeah. it get to be the option that you ended up choosing? I actually, we had a couple of friends that got divorced at the same time. And when I saw that, and it's interesting now being on the other side of divorce, because when that happens, I do feel like a lot of people think that it's like contagious, <laughs> that mm. divorce there, it's scary. It's scary for married people because it seems like one of those things that maybe could happen if you're not careful. Mm. And I will say that in this experience, it didn't, it wasn't something that I had ever considered. And then I saw friends doing it and thought, you know, I am, I think what, 23 at the time I was 23 years old. We didn't have kids. I felt like my purpose was, um, dying, that I was sacrificing a calling that I had inside of myself, uh, for the sake of our marriage. And I, I know that the things that I'm saying are going to totally fire up some people because I got it. I lost a lot of friends in it and, um, it, a lot of community, a lot of support. It was really difficult for my family. And I understand why divorce is not something that people want. It's not an ideal outcome. And it was really hard. I think that if someone would have told me how hard the future would be after the divorce, I would I don't know that I would have done it at the time mm -hmm. because I don't, I think that I had reached a breaking point already for myself. Like I didn't see a way out. It had become so dark for me that I, I didn't see a way out. And I thought maybe, um, maybe divorce was that. And, but the following years were really difficult. And I, I mean, I just have such a heart for people who are going through that now because of it. And it is something that so many people, especially in the church and young married people from the church go through. Yeah. It's such a humbling, obviously I've never been divorced, but I've gone through my own crap and my book that's coming out in February. And this is not a shameless plug. This is just the reality is revealing, oh, it. <laughs> is revealing a lot of the things that, uh, it, once people know, then there, there's going to be, there's going to be some controversy, but, um, all that to say it's humbling when you either deliberately make a choice or find yourself in a position where you've made a choice that does not align with your faith or, um, yeah, I, I feel for you. It's so humbling, but it also grows your empathy for people because no oh longer gosh. are you above it. No longer are you this like self-righteous judgmental. I'm, I'm speaking more for myself, not you, but no, this is, no, I'm sure is, I feel it too. Yeah. So for me, it's like, I didn't come to a place where I started saying there isn't a single person you wouldn't love if you knew their story. I say that quote a lot. I didn't start believing that or saying that until I lived the darkest days of my life. And I wanted to believe and hoped to believe 
that if people knew my story, they would still love me. Oh, absolutely. And that is, I mean, once you're there and you see that and you lose friends and family over some of those things. And for me, I, I now have enough separation from it. This is all, I mean, we now have been divorced for 10 years. So I have enough separation from it where I'm able to say it was a choice for me. I knew I had a choice in it, but growing up the way I did and not feeling like I had a voice, that was a moment that I actually really trusted my gut and trusted the things that were inside of me and made that choice knowing it would be difficult. Um, and ironically, it it was in a way that felt so contradictory to everything that I had been gro- I had grown up with, all of these lessons about faith, and I was suddenly faced as someone who was an extreme people pleaser with the idea of disappointing everyone in my community, disappointing everyone I loved, and having to wrestle with what does it look like? Can does God still love me in this time, and am I able to move forward and I am so grateful during that time. I never felt a distance from God. I felt a distance from the church and from our church community. But I, I really felt so strongly that, you know, just different verses that had been spoken over me in my life. It's like a hope in a the future. There still is beautiful things ahead. And if my faith is limited to me only doing what I, you know, think is the right thing to do all the time. And if my faith and God's love doesn't cover me in those times where I really screw up, then uh, I don't know if this faith is big enough for it. And my idea of God, I don't know if my idea of God is big enough. If, it, if, it, if grace doesn't actually cover me when I screw up, like to the fullest extent of I, my capacity. I'm over here like preach, 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 preach. <laughs> I totally agree. Solidarity. And oh my gosh, I, yeah. So really quick questions because I'm just such a, my brain goes to like these details. Yeah. Did your husband at the time, like when you said, I want to get a divorce or however that came to the, that point, mm-hmm. was he on board and you guys were able to walk through it mutually or was that a fight? And like, I know you said he was a good guy, is a good guy, like all that, but do you have a relationship at all to this day? Uh, he was absolutely not on board. He, um, I had originally asked for separation because I am such an introvert that when I just felt like I had no margin during that time of my life. And so originally I just wanted to lock myself up in a room and get some clarity and some space and see what happened and to be like, okay, can we fall in love again? Can we, what can this look like? Can we try this again? And, um, his response was, I'm not going to help you leave me. So I then was kind of faced with this decision and I made it pretty suddenly. And then just, it was like, it clicked. I had gone so far and asked for help so many times in our marriage, asked for therapy so many times in our marriage, and that hadn't ever come to pass. And so by that point, it just felt like a breaking point. And I, I had was like, I'm done now. And, um, no, we don't have a relationship. He stayed friends with my family for a little bit longer and that kind of thing. But, um, and I'll still see him and his family around town every once in a while, but it's awkward. Yeah. I'm no lying there. Like the honesty of it is this is a small town that I grew up in and, you know, there's friends and family that overlaps and you have to just live with those things. That's part of the fallout. 
Yeah. So is that, I have to wonder, is that what drove you to move to Rwanda or what happened from the point of divorcing to living overseas like that? Tell me what happened there. Um, actually no, but it is what eventually, uh, drove me to moving to Chicago where we have a lot of mutual friends. Um, I, I stayed in my hometown for about a year later because I told myself I don't want to run away, which, Now looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, have all of the permission to run away. If you are in a total shit season of your life to people, and if you need a change, if you need to like, if you need a transformation, do what you need to do. I stayed in it and I feel like I martyred myself for like a year thinking it was the the right thing to do, the harder thing to do. I love that you just said that because oftentimes I would say, don't run from your pain. Like don't run away. Don't escape the, this, this, these negative feelings or whatever. But I think you just made a good point. Like also it goes back to that self-sacrifice, like really Mm -hmm. toxic mentality that sometimes Christianity can, uh, bring up for some people, which is, yeah, also don't like put your, don't stay in a really bad environment where you're just uh, miserable either. So, so I love that you just gave people permission. No, you can get out of that. You don't have to like be a martyr. Like, I love that you said that. Totally. And I think that part of my motivation for staying, like if I'm really transparent and honest is that I look back and I almost want, I wanted the approval of our community. I wanted to win it back. I wanted them to see that I wasn't a shitty person. Mm. And you know, like there, obviously if you go through something like that, if you go through a divorce, people want the quickest, most simple answer, not just a divorce. I think any kind of trauma, any kind of hard thing, people want to make sense of it. And when they do, they try to look for it in a really simple explanation. She must be having an affair. She must be doing this. Like, you know, whatever it is. Totally. Oh my goodness. Even with our oldest leaving our care and me saying like, I was as transparent as appropriately possible while honoring everyone involved. So therefore I wasn't able to give like all the details publicly. And yet the number of people that come into my email or inbox really like desperately wanting the one line sentence that tells exactly why he left our care. I'm just like, oh my gosh, that would be me trying. I can't, it's not even possible. Yeah. Oh, that, I, that like blows my mind that just, you know, that people want to still, even after you have explained that you have said, I'm trying to honor everybody in this process, but. And it just isn't fair for you, like in your situation or in my situation with any trauma, like you said, it isn't even fair to put it into one sentence because it's never just one sentence. Even if someone were to get divorced because there was infidelity involved, even that isn't fair because there is so much more to unpack. You have to get to the root. There, there is two sides. There are multiple. Yes. So I just, oh, I hate. Yeah, the- and people have to earn those stories. If they get to that point, if they have put in the work with you, then they get those stories. And the people in my innermost circle who knew my trust, they knew everything that was going on in my life. And I had those people in my life and I'm so grateful for it, but I didn't have the margin to tell everybody else. I didn't have the margin to explain to everybody. I didn't have to, I didn't need to want to any of that, but I look back and everyone wants a simple story and it it just isn't simple. Yes. Preach. There's so much nuance in relationships and we were together other five years. Where do you want me to start? You know, it's like, it it doesn't happen in one swift movement for the majority of experiences. It is a tiny, it's a million tiny little things that shift imperceptibly, you know? 
Absolutely. So you moved to Chicago and then yeah. carry on. I played to art school. I went to the School of the Art Institute there. I kind of needed a reason and it shifted my life into more of an art trajectory. I had uh, gone to school for criminal justice and sociology prior to that. And so it was a big shift for me, but I had always had creativity as a part of my life. And man, I just loved Chicago. I went there and I, I had actually sworn off church after my divorce and after the messiness of that community. But I got really involved um, at Soul City when it was first starting back in the warehouse days. And I, I don't know, there was something scrappy about it at that point. And I really loved this scrappy little group of people that were coming together in a warehouse and building something. And the community there was really rich. And it was, um, it was an important and really formative time in my life. I literally have goosebumps on my arms right now because I just am sitting here going, and my legs, it's like so funny. I have these goosebumps because here, my husband and I moved to Chicago six and a half years after you originally, like what you're like, where you're at. I don't know how long you ended up living yeah. in Chicago, but the point that you're describing of being at the warehouse and, and the newness of soul city and as it's coming mm -hmm. together and here we come six and a half years later to this church and it's just so cool. Like I, I have this goosebumps, not only because of how cool God has done just amazing things throughout soul city church, um, shout out Jeannie and Jarrett, but <laughs> it's, it's so cool to me how our stories, while you and I have never met in person, our stories intersect already at that point. Yeah. And it's just so cool. I'm like, it's mind crazy. blown. And I'm like, God, you're so cool that you bring, I just, yeah. I'm no, totally. I love connections and like the bridge and like that kind of stuff is something that really feeds me and something that I, I find so much joy in the intricacy of. And that is one of the ways that I see God work too, is when, um, like connections and that kind of thing. And so I, I love that the overlapping of worlds and especially, and this is when I get just totally overwhelmed by how like the timelessness of things, because I was occupying that some of that same space. And even though it looks different and the building looks different and the community looks different and everything, that is some place that has shaped us both in that same little block of Chicago yes. has shaped us both. And I think that is what is really amazing. And who knows, you know, who comes before and after that in, in it and gets intertwined in all of our lives as well. But yeah, I, I mean, I discovered you on Instagram prior to knowing that you worked at um, Soul City as well. And I think I saw your stories about foster care and everything. And then when I saw that you had worked at Soul City and we had so many mutual friends, it was amazing. I was like, what? What is I this? I know. So cool. Yeah. Okay. So how long were you in Chicago? So I was in Chicago for a couple of years and um, I ended up from there. I left Chicago. We were part of this, um, this project that was called better together, where we true, uh, went around the country and told stories of people changing their communities, doing good. And I gave up my place in Chicago to go on the road for eight weeks and do that. And after I returned, it was kind of like a clear ending for that season. And so I moved back to California, lived in Santa Barbara, moved to Atlanta. Um, I, and then when I was in Atlanta, I, um, was a part of a co-working space there that I had been connected to through some soul city people, the Corvers and the Stevens. And, um, through that got just, I mean, met another organization that was working in Rwanda. So they, and, uh, 
that organization and I shared an office, a tiny little office, and I got to hear them talk about their work in Rwanda for a year. And when they offered me the opportunity to go there, I jumped at the chance. So I thought that was an incredible offer and I wanted to check it out. Um, I went there with them on a few trips and then ended up connecting my friend with their organization. And then he started working there in the country. He and I started dating and to give it a chance, I, you know, I was like, why not? Let's do this. I really, um, I have been pretty gun shy of love for a long time post-divorce and had some tumultuous and some toxic relationships after that. And as I have uh, gotten older and given more space to it, thought, all right, this is a chance that I'm willing to give it and let's give it a real shot. So I moved to Rwanda. Um, I'm able to work remotely. So I worked remotely there and did, did lettering, did design, and just got to experience the incredible adventure of living in another country. Wow. So yeah, kind of a crazy trajectory. I'm like, oh, oh, and I lived in Nantucket. <laughs> I'm like, so since Chicago, I've lived in Santa Barbara, Atlanta, Nantucket, uh, Northern California, and Rwanda. That is so crazy. <laughs> well, I want to dive into your perspective of living in Rwanda with like, I want to talk more about white saviorism and mission trips and just like all that, because that's in the last year and a half of my life been something that my eyes are totally open to. And I look yeah. back at old mission trips that I went on and I cringe at myself, but anyways, let's save that for another episode. What if you had to, and again, this might be difficult and I'm putting you on the spot. We didn't have this yeah. planned, but if you had to summarize your learnings of getting to live in all these different places, mm -hmm. what did it teach you about yourself that you didn't know? Um, I think probably resilience and resourcefulness, if I could say, and curiosity. I think those are probably some of my strongest things that I, um, have emerged with after those experiences because if you have moved to a new city, if you have ever had the experience of having to problem solve in a new place, you realize that you have to be scrappy and resourceful and try to problem solve and figure things out. And it is going to knock you on your ass a couple times <laughs> and you have to be resilient and just get back up and figure it out and do it again and try again. And I think curiosity, having the space to be a learner and to, um, I, I mean, with what you're talking about and living in another culture, that is the biggest asset that I think. And I'm so grateful that I didn't go there when I was younger, to be honest, because I am afraid it would have been a little bit more of like these short-term mission trips and I probably would have caused more harm than good but I am so, so absolutely thankful um, that I had the opportunity to live there and just be a recipient of this incredible culture and this incredible place, the friendships and community. And I got to just absorb so much in the two years that I was there. I love that. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Wow. It's incredible. Well, I wish well, everybody could have the opportunity to live in another culture. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I totally agree too. Even just any traveling I've done has widened my perspective. It's changed me even in some small way, uh, who I have become. And so I think that's why traveling and getting to know people who 
don't look like us, don't speak the same language as us, eat different foods than us. It's so valuable. Oh, so and, much. And yeah, well, I won't go down a whole rabbit hole, but I know it's, it's like tempting. Yeah. There's so many tangents. We I know. So to wrap up today's episode, I do want to revisit. You talked about like your really dark days mm-hmm. and I know you've been pretty vocal on social media about mental health awareness. Would you just tell me um, and the listeners a little bit about your journey with either like, you know, faith, therapy, medication, your beliefs around that? I'm going to guess that your fundamentalist community was not super pro-therapy or pro-medication. I I fear that a lot of Christian communities are still pray away the depression, pray, you know, and, and there's danger in that. I would love to hear from you a little bit of your story on coming out of the dark and into the light as we wrap up this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember even as a kid having something that now I look back and I'm like, Oh, those are panic attacks. Those were anxiety attacks. Um, and when I was growing up, I mean, all I experienced a lot of different things, eating disorders, depression, anxiety, all of that. And I didn't really know who to turn to or what, what that could look like. My family wasn't necessarily educated in depression management or therapy or anything in, of those lines. I mean, my, like I said, my dad comes from a farming family, super pragmatic, sensible. I don't know that he would ever <laughs> think that that even works. But as I have, um, gotten older, I've realized that I need to be an advocate for my own care. And I really only started doing that, um, in the last few years better. And for me, like those dark days of my depression, I was really inconsistently on medication, which is, uh, worse for you than either being on it or off of it. And, um, it just, I was always on a roller coaster and for the longest time thought I can manage this. I'm fine. And I appreciate my highs and lows. And I think, you know, I don't want to take all of the feeling out of my life. I don't want to, you know, zap the feeling out of my life. That's something that I really appreciate. It's such a richness. And, um, I don't know. I appreciate the conversations that you're having around mental health as well. And recently and seeing what you're saying about that, I saw that you also have been on medication. Yes. And it's so funny because it was what yesterday that I was sharing in my stories. I, I just, for whatever reason, you guys, I like know and preach to people that there's no shame in needing meds. There's no shame in needing meds. But for some reason, I like to get these, uh, or I take these days where I feel really good. I kind of justify my circumstances. I'm like, oh, well, things have changed. Like, I probably don't need them anymore. And it's like, no, you don't feel like you need them anymore because they're working. Absolutely. So, so I go off of my meds and like four or five days later, I start feeling horrible. So then I pop a pill to start. And it's like, like you said, it's actually much, well, it's dangerous from a, I won't, I'm not a doctor, but I will just give the disclaimer. It's very, very dangerous. Do not just like try to cut your meds cold Turkey. Definitely Mm -hmm. don't take them sporadically, uh, when they're designed to be taken every day because it will cause more harm. And that's exactly what we started seeing happen for me. And it's just so like, I have to keep, it's funny when you can preach something to other people and you really do believe it for, for, everybody else, but you don't believe it for yourself. It's almost like I would never look at you and say that you needing medication is weak or that it's bad or, but for me, my part of my shadow side, part of what I struggle with is self-resiliency and thinking 
that I can do everything on my own strength. Mm -hmm. And this is medication is God's gift to me. And it's actually how I rely on God. And for some reason that is so hard for me most days. So yes, I've been talking about it a lot more because it's, it's been, so right now I'm currently like taking my Lexapro, Lexapro every day and I'm finally feeling good. And I'm also telling myself you're feeling good because the meds are working. This doesn't mean that you need to stop and try. Why am I so quick? Now I am going down a tangent, but why am I so quick to think I should work myself out of these medications? Not saying people can't, but why am I trying to like, why, why do I feel the need to get to a point where I don't need meds? Right. I don't I know. Think we've been told that society, like in society, it's like, you know, there is some, there is still stigma around it, regardless of whether it's short-term, long-term, but because I don't think what you're talking about is extremely uncommon. I think that it is more common. I have some of my most vocal friends have fallen into this same thing and myself included. Anytime you feel good, it's like, well, I feel fine. Well, obviously there's something working there that there's a reason. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, when I am consistent on my meds, I see such a difference and it's not that I lose any of the vibrancy in my life. It's that my baseline is just higher. I am more functional and my focus is better and I feel more able to do the things that I actually want to do. Yeah. It is huge for me. It's a really huge difference. Yeah. And sometimes I don't necessarily see or feel a huge difference, but the people around me, the people I love, my husband, my kids, they have my kids, especially without even realizing it have made comments that make me realize, wow, they feel and notice a difference when I'm on my meds. Cause they're, totally. you know, they're innocent. They're naive. They don't even know. I don't even think they know that I take meds. Um, but it's like, they'll say things, um, like, you're, you're in a really good mood or whatever. Right. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, they notice, they notice, like they notice yeah. the difference in me. Um, totally. and they're not afraid that I'm going to snap at them. And, oh, anyways. So yeah. for sometimes when I'm trying to convince myself, I don't need meds, the thing that will keep me taking them when my self-sufficiency, uh, inner voice is screaming at me, you don't need these. You can do it without. I remember those people. Yeah. And I do sure. it for them. Yeah. And I think that's really beautiful and important. And I have that same experience. And I think that is why I'm so vocal on social media about it, because there is, for the majority of my life, I I wanted to be self-reliant, like you said, and just overcome it. And I didn't want to take those things. But I think there is enough of a stigma, especially in the church, um, about a lot of the things that I've, you know, talked about today, whether it's divorce, whether it's, you know, there's a lot of these things that have a stigma around it. And I, after going through it, after walking through depression, after walking, you know, still in walking with depression and just figuring out what life looks like in this, I can talk about it. I don't have as much shame around it. And I think that having permission to really be in that messy, like middle space gives other people the permission to acknowledge their own and take steps towards healthier living. And I had people who did that in my life that I'm really grateful for. And I think now that is something I'm able to do for others. And who cares if there's some people out there who think I'm weak for whatever it is that these flaws are, 
go for it, you know? But there, for all of those people, there's a handful of others that really need to hear what it is that I'm saying. And I, that's, I mean, that's something that I'm really appreciative for in you doing this podcast is having, um, giving space to people in that, you know, listening to some of the other guests speak and hearing those perspectives where you're talking about people's stories and, oh my gosh, your guest, that was the birth mother. Mm. Like she just, I mean, it was incredible hearing her perspective because, here is someone who isn't necessarily openly talking about this experience or here is a situation that most people don't openly talk about, or we might not have a friend who goes through it. And when you hear a friend talking about these things in an honest, vulnerable way, I think that is where we connect better as humans. And like, that is the true um, soul of humanity right there. And what brings all of us to being in our best places. And so I just, I think that is what we each can offer the world is just a little more transparency. And I know authenticity has become such a buzzword, but, but it's like, really just be honest about the things that you're experiencing in your life. The more I've heard before the more specific and like the more honest you can be, it's the more universal because Mm -hmm. these things that we experience that we think we're so alone in are really things that so many other people are struggling with and the world needs those voices. We need people from the margin. We need to hear that because really it's not the margin. It's more likely the majority. Yeah, totally. Oh, okay. We're kindred spirits. Next time I'm out in California, hopefully we can hang out in person, grab coffee. I know. I need to come back to Chicago too. Yeah, or come stay with us in Chicago. That would be so fun. So fun. Thank you for sharing and opening up. I am so blessed by you on social media and this conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Love being here and talking with you.